This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. Broadcast regulator is calling on the government to tax the likes of Netflix and Spotify, among others. The CRTC has proposed that such companies, including Internet service providers, should be forced to fund the production of Canadian content. The intention is to help compensate for the declining contribution of cable and satellite providers. It's so unbelievable to be able to experience that kind of cultural sharing. So for this, we are very grateful to Netflix. However, fast forward to what happens after imperialism and the damage that that can do to local community. So all I would say is let us be mindful of how it is we as Canadians respond to uh, global companies coming into our country. For the better part of two decades, Canadian cultural groups have been pressing Canada's telecom and broadcast regulator, the CRTC, to regulate and tax the Internet. As far back as 1998, the CRTC conducted hearings on new media in which groups argued that the dial-up Internet was little different from conventional broadcasting and should be regulated and taxed as such. The CRTC and successive governments consistently rejected the Internet regulation drumbeat citing obvious differences with broadcast, competing policy objectives such as affordable access, and the benefits of competition. That seemed to change last year when the CRTC released Harnessing Change, the Future of Programming Distribution in Canada, a report that dramatically reversed its approach. The CRTC reversal highlights competing visions of Canadian content regulation and the Internet. There are those, such as CBC's Catherine Tate, who have likened Netflix to a cultural imperialist that requires a regulatory response. Others look at recent data that shows that when it comes to Canadian English-language fictional programming, foreign financing is now larger than the funding from broadcasters and Canada Media Fund contributions combined. As one columnist recently concluded, the evidence doesn't back up the case that extending the paternalistic CanCon regulatory model to foreign streaming services will do anything to save Canadian culture. To help sort through CanCon funding, internet regulation, and the CRTC, I'm joined on the podcast this week by Peter Menzies, a former CRTC commissioner and vice chair of telecommunications. Peter has been a reporter, newspaper publisher, regulator, and is now the director of the Royal Saskatchewan Museum. Thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. No, thanks very much. It's a it's a pleasure, um, and I'm flattered to uh, be part of this. Thanks. Well, you've been one of the the people who've been really outspoken when it comes to the CRTC and cultural issues. So you're really a perfect person to come on and, and talk about some of the things that are taking place. And I thought we'd start by focusing on what seems like a recurring issue, literally years and years and years of the same kind of issue being discussed uh, when it comes to the prospect of new sources of revenue, new fees associated with either internet streaming services or internet services more generally to fund CanCon. And so we've seen this issue recur, sometimes talking about it in the context of a so-called Netflix tax, other times about broadband or wireless taxes, all in the name of supporting the creation of Canadian content. It was back in the news recently 
with new data that showed that foreign services are significantly outspending Canadian broadcasters when it comes to at least English language drama. Canada's $8 billion production industry is booming like never before. In another studio nearby, a set is under construction for another Netflix series called Lock and Key. Foreign streaming services from Netflix to Amazon to Hulu are creating jobs here, but they make no contribution to the government-sponsored funds. And so I guess the question that I want to start with is, is there a CanCon crisis in Canada? There's always a CanCon crisis in Canada, in the minds of some people. And in the minds of some other people, there's never really a CanCon crisis in Canada. So it depends how you look at it in terms of that sort of sense. I mean, from a person lobbying for more funding for CanCon or, or for a person lobbying for more funding for anything, it's always to their advantage to have a crisis um, ongoing. And I think that's been part of the culture of the CanCon discussion for at least 30 years. Um, and it really goes into our history of being of protecting ourselves uh, against uh, foreigners. Um, I've used the phrase a couple of times, we've built this big, beautiful wall between us and the United States to protect our culture from them. Um, and now we're having a lot of difficulty adjusting to the idea that walls aren't what we need. Okay, if walls aren't what we need, uh, what do you think we do need, I guess, just to jump right in, in this, in this new Internet-based environment? Well, I mean, adaptation becomes the first thing. I, 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 just to give it a little context, about 10 years ago, it's probably at least 10 years ago or so, I was at a, the CMPA primetime conference in Ottawa, and, and uh, I think it was Glenn O'Farrell, but um, I stand to be corrected, but... Um, was uh, taking some questions and that sort of stuff. And I, I remember asking him sort of regarding the, the CanCon subsidy and that sort of stuff, I, sort of at what point in the future, you know, 25 years, 30 years, 50 years, 100 years sort of thing, do you see CanCon being able to be sustainable on its own? And, and the response was never. Um, and I realized then that for folks inside the system, it was inconceivable for them that there could be something other than the system and that and that that was the only way they could think i mean they're not bad people it's not necessarily a bad thought but it was a limited thought so what we need to do is move away i believe to have a better life for cancon uh, producers um, and exploit the whole world we've been trying to serve a market of 35 million people split into two languages. So you have one market really of about 25 million people and another of about 10 million people, very small markets through subsidy and done that reasonably successfully for a long time. There is an English speaking and French speaking um, market out there in the world that we could serve that has hundreds of millions, if not billions of people in it. And that seems to me like a real opportunity that we would ignore at our peril. 
the CRTC for many years, and, and you were obviously there for many years, did not want to come close to kind of regula- regulated type solutions when it came to the internet. They obviously played a key role in, in structuring this CanCon support model, but that was based on conventional regular broadcast. In the internet space, they really took a hands-off approach dating all the way back to the 1990s with the digital media exemption, essentially the power to regulate, but choosing not to. Now, that seemed to change last year with a report titled Harnessing Change, in which the current CRTC chair, Ian Scott, got behind internet taxes. And I know that he insists they aren't taxes. He talks instead about contributions to the system. We examined the future of programming distribution in Canada in our Harnessing Change report, prepared at the request of government and released in May of this year. This report asked a fundamental question. What can be done to support the production, discoverability, and promotion of Canadian programming? Harnessing Change concludes that new innovative approaches that would engage digital players are needed. I was curious about your thoughts on the report and what sure feels like a significant reversal in policy. Yeah, it is a significant reversal in policy. I mean, it it went, or at least approach in philosophy, um, it went from, you know, sort of the discoverability summit and that idea, the uh, um, some of the, the directions uh, uh encouraged by uh, the, the previous commission um, under J.P. Blay and, uh, and, and for that matter, supported by the Heritage Minister um, in many of her statements, Minister Jolie, um, regarding you know, the, the need to prepare Canada for the future. I'm pushing for commitments that benefit our industries. Today, I'm announcing the first of these agreements on behalf of the Government of Canada and Netflix. Under this agreement, Netflix will create Netflix Canada, a permanent film and television production presence here in Canada, the first time that the company has done so outside the United States. And building on the strong track record of investing in shows like Anne and Elias Greats with the CBC, Travelers with Showcase, and Frontier with Discovery, they have agreed to invest a minimum of $500 million in original productions in Canada in both official languages over the next five years. Um, Even the title, Harnessing Change, indicates that you're trying to stop something. You know, it's a a King Canute-style approach to things. We are going to harness change rather than embracing change. Um, rather than adapting to change, rather than exploiting change to our benefit. Um, there's all kinds of different ways you could look at it. So, I mean, I think that that approach was, I find, you know, I find very regressive and kind of sad because it, you can't stop change. <laughs> um, as to re, uh, meddling with the Internet and content on the Internet, um, that's a very, very dangerous game to play. Um, the internet, uh, and it speaks to how the, the, the CRTC's um, affection for the Broadcasting Act, which is 
I mean, they have to, you, you have to fulfill it. It's your job. Um, but in, in comparison to things such as the internet and telecommunications, it distorts the argument. Um, the internet is not broadcasting. The, the federal court has ruled on that. It may carry video, but I mean, everybody carries video. People go live and podcast themselves at an Eric Clapton concert. Uh, people, um, the Globe and Mail has video. National Post has nothing but video on its on its uh, website. Um, you are interfering in areas that you don't belong. Um, and the internet is far, far more than video. It's speech, it's academia, it's tons of things. So I'm not sure they've thought that through. Um, there are um, ways that they can manage things other than that, I hope. Okay, I think that's a really important point. Both the, the widespread use of video itself by a range of services that we wouldn't think of as being broadcasters in any, any real sense, and the fact that the internet is used for so much more than, than just video. I mean, it's striking. A lot of the conversation has been around the prospect of these taxes and what it means for internet affordability and the like, but I think you're right to point out that we're really talking about the prospect of, of pretty extensive regulation by the CRTC of almost any internet-based service. I mean, it could conceivably even include podcasts like this one. And so I suppose it begs the question, you know, is the CRTC even the right venue for this kind of discussion and debate, or is that something that's better left to, to Parliament to, to sort through? Well, it's absolutely left to Parliament. And the last I heard, the government of Canada was strongly defending the notion of net neutrality, um, which I think is terrific. Let me be clear. Our government stands to support net neutrality, Mr. Speaker. We support an open internet. We support the CRTC framework for net neutrality, Mr. Speaker, because we know an open internet is critical for our economy and our democracy. It's a it's a notion that should be defended. Um, I mean, it's it's a hill worth dying on in 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 a sense like in a sense like that because once you start messing with that, um, you you begin to define the internet as if it was cable. And there's there's a real trend that you can pick up in the discussions. It comes from within the industry, and it comes from within the CRTC that this whole internet fad, you know, it's just kind of like, it's just the new cable, right? And it's not. <laughs> People have, should have no business. I mean, it's not that it should be the wild west, the internet should be governed like the rest of the public square is governed. I mean, there are hate speech laws, there are um, libel laws, there are defamation laws. There's there's all kinds of laws. There's you know, um, you know, sexual exploitation laws. All the laws of the land should apply for, to the internet. It should not be. It doesn't have to be a wild west zone. But when it comes to regulation through a regulator such as the CRTC. Its sole role should be ensuring that the content, that the, free, that the role of net neutrality is respected, and that, um, and when it comes to providing fair competitor access and items like that, that the public, that matter to the public, but most of the public doesn't know that it matters to them. You have a thought as to to why we've seen the CRTC shift in this way? And is is it a, simply a matter that regulators are, are going to regulate? And, and as it feels its 
in a sense, power to regulate over conventional broadcasters where it had that power largely through licensing and, and a more closed system. And it feels that evaporated. It, it extends over to the internet. Although even as I asked the question, I know that for a very long time, the CRTC resisted doing exactly that. Yeah. I mean, my sense of it right now is that it's kind of local politics. Um, Minister Jolie was, um, and so was the preceding uh, uh, CRTC chair um, in his last year, um, was being attacked by the cultural lobby, um, a large part of which is based out of Montreal, uh, that did not like the changes that had been made, um, that did not like um, the, uh, uh, the approach moving forward and felt more comfortable um, moving, you know, advancing the cause of, um, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm conscious of the fact that I'm, you know, talking about a lot of people, I'm at risk of generalizing about a lot of people here, but let me just try to say that that specific group, because there's other groups I could mention, that specific group is, for them, it's much easier to have the outside world change than for their world to change. So the solution to them has always been just put a, a tax on Netflix and other streaming services and everything will be fine. It'll be just like 1985. Um, the revenue we might lose through lower cable subscriptions will be replaced by streaming subscriptions and we're all good. Um, and, you know, they won. Uh, minister Jolie is no, unfortunately, in my view, um, is no longer minister, and uh, and the uh, the harnessing change is the new approach. You know, when you talk about the kind of targeting that takes place, uh, Netflix, as as you suggest, is is frequently the target in Canada, and I think, at least in recent memory, there's no more infamous incident than when CBC President Catherine Tate spoke to an industry conference earlier this year calling Netflix a new empire. I was thinking um, about the British Empire and um, how if you were there and you were the Viceroy of India, um, you would feel that you were doing only good for the people of India. <laughs> or similarly, if you were in French Africa, you would think I'm educating them, I'm bringing up, they bring their resources to the world, and I am helping them. There was a time where cultural imperialism was absolutely accepted. And in fact, we were, if you're a history student, you would be proud of the contribution that these great empires gave. I would say we are at the beginning of a new empire. The industry often has discussed Netflix really in, in the context of or with the vision of being a threat, talking about an uneven playing field with the notion that benefit that Netflix benefits from an unregulated, untaxed service, unlike some of its Canadian counterparts. Although I think there's arguments that the level playing field issues oftentimes swing the other way. There's all sorts of benefits that the regulated sector has that Netflix doesn't. Uh, but it, it's pretty clear that it's... It's a framing that has certainly caught the attention of policymakers, and now it would seem the CRTC. Any thoughts on what, if anything, the regulatory world should look like for some of these online streaming services? Well, I mean, obviously they should be collecting sales tax um, and contributing to the to the 
to the treasuries in, in that manner. And in fact, in Saskatchewan, they are collecting uh, PST now, so it, it obviously can be done. They should be contributing to, to society um, just, the, just the way all businesses should be. In terms of um, how they should be, con and I think that contribution is fine because in my perfect world, you would actually detach cultural funding from these vehicles and it would come from general revenue. And that would, that would remove the risk of the telecom world um, being distorted by the broadcasting world. The broad, where you need cultural funding, it could be provided um, straight through um, the federal treasury rather than through whatever you want to call them, taxes or, or fees on distribution platforms. Um, yeah, the, uh, for those, there are a group of people, and I, I met with some in one of my, you know, in my last year um, at the CRTC of producers who actually were encouraging us to continue to do nothing about Netflix. Um, because in their view, uh, Netflix was providing a lot of money, um, was investing heavily in their industry in Canada. They liked that and they didn't want that to be chased away. For them, that was um, a great advantage. It provided um, an additional um, path to for, for their production. I met a young fellow uh, producer also in my last year who, when we talked about the new rules, just sort of shrugged and said, hey, when we saw them, we, uh, I just called the staff in and said, okay, guys, things have changed. We have a new, uh, we have a new uh, foundation. If we can't sell it to Netflix, we don't make it. Um, so it changed, changed everything in that regard. So there, is a, there are people who want to move out into the world and take advantage of a bigger world. And you can do that through uh, streaming platforms such as Netflix and others. And let's face it, there's, there's going to be a lot more. Um, and I'm curious to know why... I don't quite understand um, why Canadians haven't sort of taken that bull by the horns and run with it a bit more. Yeah, well, perhaps it does come back to your one of your very early points in this conversation about walls and uh, the notion of a challenge in competing with a streaming service that sees itself as a global player that now quite literally has content that people really want to access and view from around the world, as opposed to a, a country where so much of the approach has long been defined by being limited within the within the national borders. You, you stated something just a moment ago that I, that I want to drill down on for just a moment, and that, that was to suggest that the right way to fund CanCon or cultural priorities ought not to be the kind of subsidy model that we've had for for, for many, many years, especially through conventional broadcast, but rather through general revenues. Uh, can, you, can you expand a bit on, on how you see this taking place? In a sense, I think it's, it's suggesting that we ought, it's not that we ought to extend these kinds of mandated contributions or taxes to Netflix and other streaming services. It's that we ought to get out of the business altogether of using these kinds of fees as the way that we try to fund this kind of Canadian content. Once you attach them to the cultural side, they begin, and you can see this in the, the risk and the harnessing change report, you begin to define them as cultural carriers um, rather than just carriers um, and, and agnostic. And if you see them as cultural entities, then you end up messing with them. Um, and, 
and and it perverts that um, uh, that all those all those principles around net neutrality and that sort of stuff. So it's a lot easier to get rid of that risk to and, and it, you wouldn't just mitigate it; you would eliminate that risk by creating funding, uh, just funding directly from the federal treasury. Um, and that's entirely possible. In the grand scheme of things, the sums are not insignificant, but they're not overwhelming. Um, cultural funding, when it compares to other areas, is uh, is uh, fairly modest. So that's the that's the view I take on that. Okay, so that, that's certainly one alternative. And, and we do see more and more people arguing that if the current system is diminishing in importance, given the decreasing revenues for broadcasters, obviously we're seeing more money come in from foreign unregulated players, but perhaps it's time to rethink the system as a whole. And of course, that's part of what's taking place with the launch of the broadcast and telecommunications legislative review panel, the panel that was also sort of coming out, came out of Minister Jolie and Minister Baines talking about the prospect of a, a rethink of Canadian broadcast and telecommunications laws. A preliminary report is expected in June, the final one in early 2020. You know, it holds the prospect of a real overhaul, or at least recommendations of an overhaul on broadcast and telecom. If you were on the panel, or perhaps asked to provide it with some advice, what would you say? Well, I would say we would have to, to move into some of those areas, and I would think that we need to be more progressive in our approach. I mean, I find the current approach um, of this um, to go back to you know something something you said when we talk about the system. I, I think there's risk in these discussions of believing that the system is the industry, that the system and the industry kind of you know are are all one um, in terms of that. And I'm not ignorant of the fact that they're very closely tied, but there is a world outside this walled garden. Um, that has so much opportunity into it. Um, you know, like you can spend your time being afraid that you will lose half of your market of 25 million Anglophone Canadians to foreign invaders, or you can spend your time thinking about how you could maybe grab 10% of a market of 800 million people. I mean, there are 125 million Anglophones in India, right? You, you can, I've talked to um, producers of, of, of content aimed at, at, uh, uh, at, at the Indian market and people in the Indian diaspora. Um, and, you know, that's the way they look at it. Why would I aim, you know, why would I ignore that market, right? It, it makes no sense to me whatsoever that you would have an approach that continues to be defend this small market within which nobody will ever get super rich. Um, I get that, but that we should be going out into the world and and exploring those opportunities. So that would be the the broad philosophy upon which I would like I would encourage people to look at things because otherwise we just become walled in. Well, we become little Canadians, and I would like us to be big Canadians. Peter, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you, Michael. It's been a pleasure and a privilege. The government's expert panel 
Broadcast and Telecommunications Legislative Review Panel is expected to release an interim report in late June. Its final report and recommendations are due in January 2020. That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. That's L-A-W-B-Y-T-E-S at P-O-Box.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at LawBitesPod or Michael Geist at M. Geist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The Law Bites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron LeBoy. Music by the LeBoy brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening and see you next time.